and welcome to Always Already Podcast. You're here today with the whole crew. I'm Emily. And John. And B. And Rachel. And this is the first time all four of us have been on the same show together. Am I right about that? You're correct. Indeed. Yes. We're in a very awkward, <laughs> a very awkward orientation. We're all in the same room, but because we can't all crowd around one sound device, we're like split up. So it's very actual radio. Oh, I know that's my orientation. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so, we're going to be speaking over each other in many. Not many like parts. that's ever happened. Shocking. Never, never. It's funny. What you can't see, listeners, is that when um, we're not. Uh, actually talking over each other there's this sort of like eye gaze thing where it's like uh, uh, I uh, think I'm uh, gonna say I'm uh, gonna say something it's like I don't want we're trying to cut each other it? off with our eyes yeah <laughs> cutting each other off with our eyes would be a good memoir title for academia or, better than undressing like each other left. with our eyes or the name of a discipline and punish album <laughs> <laughs> wait discipline and punish is the band yeah, yeah. it's oh. queer metal band oh I love that I know B and I saw Mad Max the other night, and I said there was Ooh, something it from it that needed to be involved in Discipline and Punish. Do you remember what it was, B? It was the guitarist who was attached to the flame guitar. That was such an interesting part of that movie. I was not quite... Every time it came up, I was like, it's really jarring the seriousness of the film. It was like, very, <laughs> yeah. It was very, here you go, 14-year-old boys. Like, <laughs> okay, or 28-year-old boys. Or 28-year-old, you know, metal fans, too. Well, you, did you just do 14 times 2 on purpose, John? No, I, that's me, actual my age. age. Uh, God, yeah, you're so I, quantitative. Ooh, <laughs> I, I liked the flaming guitar in Mad Max. I mean, I'm going to say I liked it, too. This might be a that. weird podcast because we've already been talking for two minutes and we have yet to mention the title of the book we're discussing. Well, we're bantering. <laughs> we're playful banter. Book? I mean, clearly they've book? been to the website. They've, like, downloaded the episode. They know what's coming. Exactly. That's Rachel, a good point, will yeah. you tell them? The Messiah. Coming? The Messiah is indeed. Okay. The Messiah is <laughs> coming. What else is coming? <laughs> what's actually, what's <laughs> what actually on actually its way? Mean? Oh, dad jokes. Vibrant Matter, A Political Ecology of Things by Jane Bennett. And we read the first chapter, The Force of Things, the fifth chapter, Neither Vitalism Nor Mechanism, and the seventh chapter, Political Ecologies. Also, fun fact, uh, Jane Bennett will be coming to the Graduate Center next year, uh, Thursday, March 3rd. Guess who's going to be the discussant for Jane Bennett? I'm going to be the discussant. So any listeners in the New York area, come out, hear me bullshit my way through some comments yeah. on a probably brilliant paper and we can all hug afterwards that sounds fun that, sounds awesome. that seems like most of my life i want hugs <laughs> um, can i get a hug later from we're too far <laughs> apart to have <laughs> a hug right now fine here oh that's that's cute <laughs> um <laughs> and sadly this is going to be emily's last episode for a little while because she's because fancy and smart. she's fancy and smart okay where's she going yeah, where is she going? Tell, <laughs> yeah, tell the listeners. Nobody what's going knows. On. I don't want to. Do it. This is good. Fine. Okay. I will be attending an uh, institute with the National Endowment for the Humanities oh. at Michigan State. The topic is development, ethics, and global justice, gender, economics, environment. So very easy to say. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. And because uh, I doubt Emily will do it for herself, we can bribe for her and say that she is one of only a couple grad students among a couple dozen. 25 total, yeah. Okay. Across yeah, the yeah, nation. Across so, the nation, mind like you. Like said, smart and fancy. 
fancy. Yeah, it makes sense. Fancy is going to be dorm living for four <laughs> weeks. <laughs> but actually, it's kind of fun. I'm, I'm, luck- looking bo- I'm looking forward to it. Right. Luckily, Smart and Fancy is also what we do on this podcast. That's <laughs> true. After the summary. <laughs> Good transition. <laughs> On this week's episode, we discuss Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter, A Political Ecology of Things, focusing specifically on chapters 1, 5, and 7. Published in 2010, Bennett's book addresses the sometimes broken or inadequate conversation between various materialist accounts of politics. As she asks in her preface, How does Marx's notion of materiality, as economic structures and exchanges that provoke many other events, come to stand for the materialist perspective per se? Why is there not a more robust debate between contending philosophies of materiality or between contending accounts of how materiality matters to politics? Her question underlies much of her project throughout the book, to include within the continuum of materialist conversation the importance of considering what she calls vital materiality, the capacity of so-called passive, inner, non-organic matter to act, to influence, to shape human worlds in ways that trouble a very category human as an entity separate from the political and environmental ecosystems of which we're a part. And one effect of questioning that which we consider matter and that which we consider life is to shake the very foundations of anthropocentrism, So she asks throughout, directly and indirectly, how this analysis would change the way we think about political events, particularly under capitalism today, and our search for, quote, more ecological, materially sustainable modes of production. In chapter one, The Force of Things, Bennett explores what she calls the recalcitrance of things, focusing not, as Foucault does, on networks of productive power that have been fashioned by humans, but rather on what she calls the thing power of matter. And by this term, she connotes the irreducible, perhaps omnipresent, unobjectifiable element of things, of matter, that escape human definition and knowledge. She wishes to acknowledge the wildness, as she says, and the inherent capacity to act of matter, in part to underscore the gap between human understanding and the thing as it exists in the world for itself. In this way, she builds upon Adorno's prioritizing of the object at the cost of its integrity, and similar to Adorno, holds human hubris up to the light. As importantly, she suggests that human powers are themselves evidence of our own constitution as vital materiality, rather than God-ordained soul minds transcending the inorganic matter around us. In chapter 5, Neither Vitalism Nor Mechanism, Bennett explores how the works of Dreisch and Bergson lend themselves to an understanding of vital materialism. However, they focus too much not on a quite, excuse me, they focus too much on a quote, not quite material life, as she says, not fully capturing the vitality of matter and its ability to act. Yet they do share with her project a distancing from mechanism and deterministic materialism. This discussion in chapter 5 and the following chapters build to her discussion of democracy in chapter 7, entitled Political Ecologies. This chapter is an exploration of the application of vital materialism to what Aristotle and many of his followers in the traditional Western canon would conceive of as the political realm. By using Dewey's understanding of democracy as a conjoint form of life or a confederation of bodies, She explores both literally and metaphorically how political life is that of an ecosystem, 
She then uses Ranciere to explore how he, too, suggests a demos that is, quote, unruly, active, or indeterminate wave of energy. And in both cases, she searches for a more vital materialist democratic project. The effect is to heavily underscore for the reader, both in this chapter and throughout the book, that which gets taken for granted is animate and inanimate, and that which gets attributed with capacities for making decisions and participating in political life, even within the traditionally understood confines of the human species. So given that all four of us are here, and that's maybe going to be harder than usual, um, I think what we decided to do was go through a set of questions that we formulated about the text. and That all, is what we decided. <laughs> and try to all be more concise than we usually are, which is not concise. But Feel free to let us know how we did you, after. If you're <laughs> still tuning in, you're fine with it. Yeah, listeners interrupt us at any time. Anytime you yeah. want. We're, we're accepting calls. Yeah. The lines, our... the lines are ready. <laughs> the <laughs> lines are hot. <laughs> no, I guess we could try a live call-in show, but I don't think that would work. That would certainly not work. That would definitely <laughs> but that's not why work. we have advice questions and dream analysis, <laughs> yes. which are coming later. Indeed. Stay so the, tuned. So the first question is a question from Emily about thing power. Emily from Canada? Emily from Canada. No, Emily from Michigan State. Ah, um, oh, get it. Emily from the CUNY Graduate Center? <laughs> get your facts straight. Sorry. I mean... Ooh. Sorry, that's I don't like that sentence. What is I know. Facts? Get your facts. Aren't they socially situated? Why straight and why facts? I was just yeah. being a jerk. Okay. You were leaning in. You were yeah. leaning and in. Your heteronormative liberal feminism. Game, Emily. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> okay, so the question I had was about thing power. So this is the first chapter we read. Um, what's it called? The Force of Things, right? And in this chapter, Bennett's um, articulating what she calls thing power, which is like the ability things have to affect, create, um, influence, change, etc. Add on, tack on your words, right? So my question was whether thing power is something new or whether um, it's something that that's being synthesized from uh, accounts of vitality or of materiality that Bennett is kind of working through to generate this concept. So that's kind of like maybe a not so important nuance, like is it a new thing or is it a synthesizing of things before it? But I think it's kind of interesting to think about what this question in terms of what she's intervening in and what huh, what the like goals of the political ecology or of the democracy are right like if it's if it is bleh, if this is a new thing then it's like a new democracy right if it's something like generate or something um what's the word i'm looking for um that is already coheres or not coheres but is already existing in all these other threads but it's just being like pulled out then maybe there's something that's in what we have that's already existing that can also be pulled out? I don't know. Help me. Well, there's certainly a lot of Marxism that, that could be, you know, thing that thing power comes from. But there's also – but she explicitly makes – I know. She explicitly delineates a certain kind of uh, deviation from that and then suggests that it's not just Marx. What I'm saying is that, you know, suggesting that there's a power in a thing, right – could extend from Marx, but then science studies has also dealt with the degree of power within objects. We want to call it objects. Um, and so, like, it's, it seems like it's a transdisciplinary conversation that's finally making its way into, you know, into political science. And I think that that's fascinating and wonderful. I mean, I think it goes back to her. That doesn't the, answer my question. The many lines of. Oh, sorry. Project. I do find it fascinating and wonderful, Jane Bennett. I love you. I mean, love you. I think one of her um, 
Emily, maybe another way of another question we're all getting at with that is what what is the value added to be really neoliberal about it? So um, I think there's some things that are building upon other um, other kind of views other people have offered. So when she's talking about the recalcitrance of the thing, I thought that was really, really interesting because it's basically talking about that which is knowledge resistant, that which resists being categorized, um, that which surprises us beyond the way in which we delineate it as a concept. In what ways does that differ? Can I ask this question? In what ways does that differ from something like the Lacanian, uh, you know, analysis? No, you of can't like, ask that I'm question. sorry. It was from Zizek and Butler from last from <laughs> oh, last week. In what way does it differ? We from... forgot to get a taboo buzzer to say like. Eh, okay, so like... I'm not just saying it because <laughs> it's one of my no. favorite L's, but like you know, the Lacanian real resisting re symbolization, or say, um, in what ways does that differ from like the Foucault? Like she mentions the Foucauldian unknown, or the ways in which, like for instance, like. Uh, the Derridian notion of difference or something along those lines, like the recalcitrance of certain kinds of things. So I, I, I had to learn it. Carol Gould made me. Um, you know, <laughs> so it's like, in what ways are these things like, in, in what ways does it definitely differ from, you know, in, this, in the recalcitrance of things from those things I just mentioned? Well, I think she's doing more than just talk about um, the problems with, you know, the symbolic realm or non-representation because she's talking about the thing as active itself. So it's not just about the absence that we can't grasp. It's about the ability of that thing to act. Yeah, I think Rachel's exactly, <clears throat> exactly right in that it's a matter of turning to the positivity oh, of the thing. Honest. <laughs> I, I am on Rachel's side. Uh, authorizing little, it. Little family Thanks for authorizing Ray's perspective. Um, Stop cockfighting. I... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to go back to Emily's question, I don't guess I'm going to take the cop out and say that I don't know if the like way you frame the question makes sense to me and okay. that it wasn't well framed. It, well, in that, in that something being new and something kind of reassembling the various uh, strands from different people seemed to me to actually be the same thing. Okay, well, okay, fine. I guess what I'm curious about is, like, if we take the examples of things that she uses, right? So she uses debris as a, an example of a thing that has power, right? So trash, right? So she's on page four of chapter one. On a sunny, sun, sunny Tuesday morning on June 4th in the grate over the storm drain to the Chesapeake Bay in front of Sam's Bagels on Cold Spring Lane in Baltimore, there was one large men's black plastic work glove, one dense mat of oak pollen, one unblemished dead rat, one white plastic bottle cap, one smooth stick of wood, right? So she's talking about, like, how these, these um, things have materiality that is alive, right? That they affect, they create all the all of these things but i don't know that that's like a new observation right so who do you think like that's if it's not new where else is it drawing from bruno latour i'm right. really sorry to have to like bring that in like it's some kind of like sorry. male dominant thing i'm just saying like it sucks that you know that somehow like here is you know, someone who's writing a book that I don't want to, uh, like, I'm not going to occlude because some male author has, like, talked or discussed or theorized these sorts of things, but, like, has used Elysian assemblage theory to describe how, you know, things have, you know, active power and how and how these assemblage operates and cooperates and um, and is coextensive with, like, social, the, the worlds that we have otherwise separated and, in fact, intertwines them. 
I suppose that that would be the answer to the question, like that the Latour has worked on this before. Right. Well, I guess I like that she defines it, thing power, the curious ability of inanimate things to animate, to act, to produce effects dramatic and subtle. Why is it a curious ability? And I think that's part of the why is this new, Yeah. right? Is because even if, you know, even theories that have paid attention to things. some kind of activity in the non-human or the inorganic world, isn't doing so with the kind of explicit ontological productivity and interactivity that Bennett is doing. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, so Latour does it in a different way. But, you know, I think of someone like Thoreau, you know, and she talks about how Thoreau has this, but there's not necessarily kind of, and Rachel, this goes back to why I thought what Rachel said a few minutes ago was so important because she talked about it in terms of an activity or a presence as opposed to a lack. And that's why I think it's really important. And so, you know, when she's doing in Chapter 5, this reading of Kant and Bergson and Karl Dreisch, um, that there's still this kind of, like, negativity or absence or lack, even though it's about, you know, some sort of agential or quasi-agential force or vitality. And so that's what I think is new and important. I was just going to... Oh, you go. I think also in, in the preface on page 16, I think... You know, she basically implies she's trying to put different theorists who could be conceived of but aren't always conceived of as materialist yes, in conversation right, with right. each other. That's so she point. says, my friend replied that she did not much care for Fr French post-structuralism for, quote, for it, quote, lacked a materialist perspective, end quote. At the time, I took this reply as a way of letting me know that she was committed to a Marx-inspired egalitarian politics. But the comment stuck and it eventually provoked these thoughts. Why did Foucault's concern with, quote, bodies and pleasures, end quote, or Deleuze and Guattari's interest in, quote, machinic assemblages, end quote, not count as materialist? How did Marx's notion of materiality as economic structures and exchanges that provoke many other events come to stand for the materialist perspective per se? Why is there not a more robust debate between contending philosophies of materiality or between contending accounts of how materiality matters to politics. Mm -hmm. So I think two things. One is putting those different strains in conversation with each other, but also trying to tie it to politics. Mm -hmm. Oh, so what's new is like the explicit political aspect of thing power then. I know it's like kind of a dumb question, but I just think it was interesting because it's not a dumb question. it relates to the question I have that we're going to come to later about anthropomorphism. Because I'm my the thing that I find curious is that I totally read this the, this adding to it the kind of positive generation or the absence not as a lack but the presence of thing power right that this kind of like other element that she is sort of like um, adding to all these iterations of kind of vitality that came before right um, but all of the examples are still defined in relation to the effect on the human right mm -hmm. so it's like how can we get out of explaining thing power as something that like does something bad to humans, which is why we notice it, right? We notice thing power because of our specifically kind of human-centered orientation to just like walking around in everyday life, right? Like we notice the dead rat and, it, and the trash and it's gross because we, it like interrupts our walk, right? It's like, and then, and then we think about trash and about pollution and about, you know, dead rats. Right. Well, I mean, can I, so I want to ask the question of how, so before, like moving forward, obviously, you know, anthropomorphism being what it is, um, how are we defining political here? Just really quickly, like I know that in the last 
um, podcast we were saying like what does it mean to politicize, depoliticize, or repoliticize? So when we're politicizing something or using the term political, how is Bennett using it, and what and to what extent are we going to use it in our explanation of of the work? Did that catch everyone off guard? <laughs> um, well, speaking of active things. Well, yeah. I mean, so I just wonder, like, the extent to which, when we're when we're engaging or we're using something that is, you know, an ob- other like a quasi subject or an object that is thus becoming political, or is the object of politics? And I'm just I'm wondering, then what? Or we're subjecting it to politics. I know it's, we're, we're going to be playing with those words a lot. Um, what is what exactly does that mean? Right. I think we're, we should. Put that to the end. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's going to be my suggestion. Okay, we can do that. Yeah, but I think that I think there are kind of two stakes in your question, Emily, and one is the question of anthropomorphism, and another is a question that I think is partly tied to a question that Rachel wanted to talk about, which is about why is this so much about negativity, and I actually don't think that is. I think that was that a question? Yeah, that was a question. I don't think so, but anyway, <laughs> maybe I misstated it. Um, that in Chapter 7, I think that she's interested in talking about how human agency is only, that the condition of possibility of human agency are all these vibrant non-human actants. So I guess I'm not, so it's still an anthropomorphic reference. Right. Um, but I'm not sure it's solely a negative anthropomorphic reference where we only anthropomorphically recognize these things for what they're doing and generating when they're necessarily harming the human. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about the um, the legal active example, right? The example of the, the small glass vial with an adhesive-covered metal lid that was the gunpowder residue sample, right? Um, and that, that, like, the reason why that has... Um, that entity has a or not or is an agent and it exercises force right like she even says it, it with each appearance it exercises more force and it becomes vital to the verdict so it, it's like it comes to life and it it does things and it exercises force even right which is kind of i think there's a little bit of a negative connotation to the word force maybe or i don't know if, if we're thinking about like relations of domination and stuff force is like maybe not the most ideal like way that you want to think about non-human actants like working in the world right um and and yet like we only come to know its importance as an actor when what's at stake is somebody's uh verdict right being convicted of murder or whatever so the Mm. one so something that pops into my head is that you know it's not even just like gunpowder residue but any like especially during courts or courts in a court setting or the judicial process a very the very file itself can become the animating force as it were um, a paper, like a dry document, um, you know, something so procedural becomes the animating, something animation and vital or animating and vital to an outcome. And thus oftentimes gets overlooked. But then don't we risk the danger of falling back into potentially just saying the socially situatedness of like the, the material object? What do you so, mean? I mean, so in order for that thing to have a force, Right. Or in order for that thing to be vital in itself to an extent, sorry to use in itself, that sounds very Kantian, but to have it in itself. Boo, I know. I mean, in itself, I know. So in order, I know, shame me, um, in order to have that power, that vitalism, it doesn't possess it in itself. It seems to have to, it seems to have to be bestowed a certain vitalism. Um, within a process that seems to be coordinated by human actors. But she addresses that, and she talks about it in the context so, of Foucault, 
Um, I can't remember which page or chapter it is, but basically saying that, you know, she is looking at micro politics and macro politics, but not necessarily in the sense of seeing it as an interlocking network of, um, you know, effects created by humans, but rather as an interlocking network of effects that are the outcome of an actant. Yeah, I suppose my question would be then, you know, circling back around and perhaps like maybe what is what's going on is perhaps a you're like going to the precipice but pulling back from it uh, where I identify the precipice as being, you know, being subject oriented or subject centered and not taking, you know, the material vitality of, of things into account is to say that, um, you know, do we in order to have meaning, right, there, there, ha- you know, so I'm, I'm going to run the risk of may- maybe playing a certain degree of devil's advocate or like pushing the bar- pushing it a little bit too much. But to say in order to have meaning, there has to be social situatedness. There has to be a socially you know, a, a certain degree of a, of a socially constructed meaning attached or associated with the thing. I don't think she's very concerned with meaning. I know that's yeah, my, I maybe that's one of my criticisms would be that meaning is meaning. I think to an extent must be associated with a certain, uh, with some things. And it's that, that meaning can be contested and politicized and thus associated with the things. But, you know, is it, is it dangerous to put like are we getting pulled back into the social by doing so what would be bad about that well because i think to an extent then all of a sudden it becomes subject centered right all of a sudden humans are then creating the it's not just the things creating the conditions but rather the humans creating the conditions for, for the conditions of the things to, to create subjects? the conditions right so it's like for, in order for things to be subjects Subjects, as humans as subjects have to create the conditions for the things to be subjects and thus we fall into a kind of recursive um, you know, you just said subjects a lot. Right. I know there was a whole lot of subjects, but it's like we fall into a kind of what's you know what's the term I'm looking for? It's a recursive you know dilemma. It's not a dilemma. Infinite regress. An infinite regress. And so it's like okay, we have to have subjects to create the conditions for the objects to be subjects for the conditions to be you know subjects. And it's like uh, you know it, well, what to what extent no, are we? But she's rejecting the subject object dichotomy yeah. altogether, right? I mean, I think the point is not to say how do we understand the meaning of things, but rather like how can Why we understand we that events and happenings are the outcome of not just human agency, but the agency of things, mm-hmm. right? So so thus like the things and humans are both subjects that act and that affect events and happenings and, and outcomes. And in the, in the, um, not prefix, but preface, she also (laughs) talks about um, subject formation and subjectivation and basically says, I acknowledge that that's there and I don't want to deal with it. Or not, I don't want to deal with it, but that's sort of like another hole that's not going to be the, I'm going to respectfully put that conversation aside. aside. And I think like understanding that you're playing devil's advocate B, I actually like completely disagree um, with the devil's advocate position. And that I think there are a lot instances throughout the book where it doesn't require human reference to the to humans or human actions for these things to exert their thing power you know she has in the introduction after she talks about her encounter with the trash and debris on cold spring lane you know this excerpt from someone who talks about going to visit uh landfills in the meadowlands and part of the what she's trying to do here and part of what the author she's citing which i can look up is robert sullivan robert sullivan thank you um is to say that these trash 
this this trash, this landfill, these things, these do this debris are doing their things and exerting their thing power regardless of whether we pay attention to it or not. And thus for me the question becomes not what's the status of the subject in all of this, but we're, I think she's kind of compelling us to think through a choice between, all right, we can either pay attention to these from the perspective of a human and thus bring in some anthropomorphism, but mean that we have to include these when we think about politics or agency or power or something like that. Right. Or we can ensure we're not being anthropomorphic and just let them do their things, but then we never reevaluate our own thinking. So I don't think it's a matter of subjectivity or not, or the social or not, but a matter of, you know, of almost a methodological choice. And I think she makes the methodological choice. She mentions a number of times, like, I know that this is potentially anthropomorphic. I know that this project is kind of impossible. Right. So I think the choice she's making is actually totally, I'm totally fine. Well, that's why I'm saying we're going, we're moving towards that precipice. We're pulling ourselves back. We're moving towards it. We're pulling ourselves back. And I think that that's the, that oscillation in itself is something that's important to like the understanding of what the criticism I was like, what I was making um, would be. But I just find it interesting because, you know, in the very beginning of the book, when we're talking about the things that clutter the gutter, as it were, um, she makes an explicit reference to a man's working glove. Why is it a man's glove? What constitutes what constitutes it as a man's glove? Like it just seems very odd. Like obviously this isn't necessarily part of the project, which is why I'm saying like the meaning of things, for example, like that thing power of the man's glove. Like did it exert itself as a man's glove on her mind, um, as a glove that appears, you know, particularly masculine? Or why wasn't it just a glove? Why was it described as a man's glove? Like, why does that matter? I don't think it's she addresses that there. A man's work glove. Like, but why was it gendered? Because that's how you sell work gloves? Well, like, I mean... It's just a description of what the item is. Well, I would say, like, if we're going to break down, like, what Matt... Like, if we're thinking through, like... I'm not... This isn't a criticism of, of, of Bennett's work. I'm saying, like, it's interest... I would say it's interesting that it's a man's work glove and not just a work glove, Right. That's, you know, cluttering the gutter. But it's also gutter. black and it's also plastic. I mean, it's just a line of descriptive words. But a gender description is very interesting to throw in in something that would otherwise just be an inanimate object, is it not? I mean, like, well, would you say like inanimate. a man? Well, what I mean, well, it's, it's, it's to, the other. The, okay, well, then you're taking to task the use of the word inanimate. I'm taking to task the gendered language that she's employing to describe a glove. And I'm saying then where well, does this meaning come from? inanimate task. We're not taking her. No, no, no. You're taking my my use of inanimate, for example, to describe the glove. What I'm saying is, like, why is it a man's working glove? Like, we elided the fact that there's, like, some – there's an element of, like, gendered language that seems to be overlooked in our attention that's being focused on the vibrancy of matter. Is a problem throughout the book? No, I think that in many instances, like what we Where would, are there, what other instances? No, I think in many instances, not through the book, if you allow me to right. finish, I think in many instances, we would need to at least acknowledge that if we're paying attention to matter, to objects or things, then we need to be paying attention to, uh, you know, the, the cer- these certain kinds of, especially if we're bringing Foucault in, the certain kinds of gendered sex and, and power dynamics that underlie the meaning that, that, necess- that sort of necessitates our use of descriptive terms for these things, right? Right, but I don't I think you're asking too much of her though because she's not the, she's not posing the question why does matter matter? She's posing the problematic like let's just say that matter 
does uh, like that it lives right so it's not why does it matter like what role does it play it's like let's let's try to show that it's not the type or the justification for the mattering but the matter itself lives right so let's let's problematize the distinction that some things are are alive and some things are not alive and let's say that like everything has a vital force to it everything has a, a force that is alive in some way right in that it enacts it affects it so i guess i just don't really see why what the meaning of the particular things that matter um matters or the particular entities of matter i think she actually wouldn't disagree that they matter i think b has a good point i mean it reminds me of sarah ahmed in some ways how is it we come to take this glove in its shape and its appearance as a man's glove but I also don't think that she necessarily disagrees that we do, you know. I think it's just not necessarily the focus of her project because mm-hmm. she's using affect to talk about um, the affect of so-called inanimate things, whereas and, Sarah and Ahmed... And assemblages. I mean, and assemblages, yeah. And Sarah Ahmed is using affect, um, maybe you could say in a slightly more anthropomorph- anthropocentric way, be- not because she's not acknowledging the rest, but she's kind of zooming in on... Um, how we interpret people, how we interpret signs and objects through the eyes of people's subjective experiences. Well, and for for Bennett, right, the the problem is that when we try to figure out how things matter or what what things are alive and what things matter more than other things, we like that's the logic that gets us to saying that like, oh, slaves and women don't have a vote, right? That that's the same logic that when we apply it to things, it also ends up you know manifesting in human relations right so when we when we unhook things from that conversation then we can also unhook humans from that conversation right to say that some things are more deserving of others than consideration as a, a live thing or a thing that has life or a thing that affects a thing that does right a thing that acts i found that to be an interesting action, in, tension in this actually is what is the purpose of this method of, of seeing things as, as seeing everything as having power is it to then do that similar unhooking of what we consider animate and what you know politics has considered or the polis has considered inanimate historically in the political realm is the end to kind of see so-called homo sapiens differently or is it to kind of see the broad continuum of organic inorganic human, non-human, animal, non-animal life as political. All of the above, yeah. I think. But for example, when she's giving the specific examples of, um, in, in, I think it's in the, the prefix. <laughs> I don't know why I want to keep saying that. The preface of, um, you know, uh, like uh, how we can understand consumerism differently through understanding the animacy of various things call back to Chen. <laughs> in some ways, in some ways it's so that we can as humans can understand how it impacts us. You see what I'm saying? So you think that the project always ends up referring back to the human? It's always No, that's why I said tension because yeah. I think it's I think it, that's why I said tension. There's this tension between her kind of showing how it refers. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that's an interesting tension even in her presentation of the material between trying to show us why seeing these seeing thing power allows us to see our own lives differently but and to, de- to 
to kind of de or recenter ourselves in different ways, but also so we can see beyond that. And she kind of shows both throughout. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's true because in the preface, she's like, I, I, my move here is to move toward a more ecologically oriented politics, but the political ecology she gives us is a one it, the the sort of central question for debate in that chapter is whether it makes sense to conceive like whether an eco ecosystem and a political realm are analogous, right? So, which is a different question than like what would it mean to have an ecologically oriented politics, right? So there's like the two things yeah. are kind of intention, like what does ecology mean for politics, and like what can we do with politics to make it look more like or at more at ecology. Well, look, I think it's kind of interesting. Like maybe we just talk about this room for a second and how in the introduction we were mentioning that um, honestly, like we were just organizing ourselves around two microphones and that was affecting how we and ourselves were, mm -hmm. you know, coordinating our orientation as it were, mm -hmm. um, how we were communicating, how we shifted that, by the way, listeners, we shifted um, overall the, um, you know, the, the actual location of the microphones in order to produce, you know, closeness between or amongst like the four of us. A little so, more slash tension. Slash <laughs> tension, um, which has clearly not just our own impact, agonistic wink, democracy. wink, agonistic <laughs> democracy. I like the agonism, <laughs> McMahon. Um, so like, I, I think like on that, on that level, I think on that level, like the, the microphone, the chair, the, everything that is in this room, um, that has facilitated, as it were facilitated, which I use that word, like in quotation marks, facilitated this dialogue has in fact exerted itself on the dialogue and has been, and has been productive of a certain kind of dialogue that we otherwise would not have had. Right. But think about, so if one of the issues is the efficacy of the mic, right? So we have to organize ourselves around the mics because the mics we have only, you know, pick up sound at a particular distance, then that like other factors that go into how well the mic works are like, how much money do we get paid and how, how mm -hmm. good of mics can we afford to buy? And then not good ones. Right. You want to buy us some good <laughs> mics? Spoiler alert. Send us yeah. some money. Um, <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? So like the, the like assemblage of things mm -hmm. isn't just that like, it's not that the desk in here and the mics are totally exerting, like, like they're, they have little brains that are like, hee hee, we're going to make you sit in weird positions because that's our power. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, a lot of the like the way we can understand the power the mic is exerting over us or whatever is filtered through or mediated yeah. through like production right um our jobs like how much money we make the room the rooms we get to sit in that we yeah. can you know that are available to us right so there's all these other i don't know i just think it's so interesting that we always i think she's spot spot on to make a, this note about anthropomorphism right that like you need a little bit of it to, to get yourself into seeing why this is an important question. But mm -hmm. my question is, that, like, is can you ever get out of it, right? Can you ever get out of only understanding the importance of this, you know, big idea, idea and this phenomena or whatever, this series of phenomena without always recalling back or referring to anthropomorphic terms or ways of knowing, right? An anthropomorphic epistemology or whatever. I think that's a good question to ask and it's one that she tries takes up briefly in chapter seven so on page 104 she says and i cannot envision any polity so egalitarian that important human needs such as health or survival would not take priority why not 
Since I have challenged the uniqueness of humanity in several ways, why not conclude that we are all equally entitled? Because I have not eliminated all differences between us, but examined instead the affinities across these differences, affinities that enable the very assemblages explored in this present book. To put it bluntly, my canatus will not let me hor horizontalize the world completely. Yeah. I also identify with members of my species, insofar as they are bodies most similar to mine. I so identify even as I seek to extend awareness of our inter-involvements and interdependencies. I think that goes very much to her discussion of Adorno, though. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's about when she's yeah, talking about Adorno. her. I do love Adorno. Oh, okay, Adorno. <laughs> but in some ways, you know, she's talking about their different approaches or their different ethics. And I think what she's really doing is trying to highlight the extent to which we can or cannot a get out of anthropocentrism in this conversation between her and Adorno, uh, presented as getting out of um, our own perspectives hmm. in seeing, you know, reality versus the object, um, and to the extent that it's recognition versus uh, acknowledgement. So for Adorno, it's sort of about acknowledging that which we can't grasp outside of our own experience, m meaning maybe anthropocentrism. Whereas for her, she thinks it's more about recognition of seeing it as active, that which we can't. Um, which is another, I think, um, contradiction in a way. If we don't know, if we can't fully grasp the reality of the object, how can we see its action? How can we see it as an actant other than acknowledging that it is one? Well, in chapter five, she gets at this from like hard science, right? I mean, like the scientific method, right? We can see it doesn't make sense that if, a, if an entity, an organism, it, and we break it open and we see all these different potentialities in it, right? You can see it under the microscope. But then, like, if it if there were nothing that was enacting upon it, then why do, why is it that all sea urchins generally kind of evolve in the same way or go about the same thing? Why is the same thing, even though there's seven, say like seven different potentialities, why does only one all, most often occur? Right. So there's like something um, that's quantifiable about the fact that there is something you can't account for. Right. Like you can measure the the fact that when something recurs that ought to be more random it isn't random right so it's just um it's like a numbers game in a way that like the numbers show that there's a lack there's an absence there's something you can't study something you can't grasp something you can't uh, pinpoint and name right or is it suggesting that there's like this you know realm in which the, or a realm that you know, can't, that's like, can't be symbolized or represented? Or is it just that, you know, I was talking with John before the podcast about quantum mechanics, for example, mm -hmm. and the idea that when we observe a thing, like we can go back to Heisenberg or Niels Bohr or even Karen Barad, it's like by the very observation of the thing itself, you're looking at reality, you're looking at its real, you're looking at a degree of its nature um, at that given moment to suggest that, you know, going the real Heisenbergian route to suggest that, you know, the very thing that you're, ob the very thing that you're Heisenbergian. Sorry. Breaking That's bad almost as bad. Yes, as always. Heisenberg. Both. Both. Let's do okay. both. Um, that the very thing that you're looking uh -huh. at, the so-called appearance, <laughs> the very, the so-called appearance that is in front of you is in fact, that's reality. That's what you're looking at because you're like in, in one sense, like, you know, the, and not to, again, you're, this is like potentially, you know, 
it's that's potentially subject oriented, human subject oriented, I should say, is to say like you're looking at this thing, this quark, this um, string, this you know this subatomic particle, right? Or a sea inside of a sea urchin, you're looking at it at that particular moment, um, but you know you're looking at a thing that doesn't necessarily like you're looking at a true, right? You're looking at truth at some like uh, you know what, however we might define it, um, but it's not to suggest that there are you know that I'm trying to suggest, or how am I framing this? It's to suggest that there are multiple ways of under an endless way that we can understand, you know, a thing, you know, I don't, I don't, okay. Can I take a stab? Yeah. Take a stab. Yeah. To get at? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's that one of the things Bennett does really well in the book is talk about how it's not just that we only see the agency of things through reference to us but our agency is only possible through the thing. Yes. Yeah. Right? So if it was only the first half of that, that would be anthropomorph- anthropomorphic and anthropocentric in a bad way, yeah. but it's by ha- holding up both of those yeah. that it's right. anthropocentric exactly in it. a That's productive exactly tension. It. That's exactly Is it. that what we're trying to get That's at, exactly maybe? it, yeah. All right, well, let's go to another question then, because we had, like, eight questions, and we've done two of them. Well, I think with the quote that you read, um, John, from chapter seven mm-hmm. kind of segues really nicely into our questions about like democracy sure. or right. What was that? What page was that on? 104? Yes. All right. The political goal of a vital materialism is not the perfect equality of actants, but a polity with more channels of communication between members. Could I go look, for I, it? I feel like I've been talking a lot. Don't. Sorry. Um, you know this better than any of <laughs> the other of us. So, um, keep so the question that I had there was that, if, uh, so she doesn't offer a fully fleshed out um, alternative to democratic theory in this chapter, but she does say that if we think about reforming the terms of democracy, that yields the potential to reformulate how we theorize about democracy and the role, um, you know, and the, um, like, what a polity is or what a citizen is. And so one of the questions that I was um, sort of wondering about was if part of what re-articulating democratic theory is, is reinventing or reinvoking terms like agency, actant, and producing, right, she says at the very end on 108, um, devising new procedures, technologies, and regimes of perception that enable us to consult non-humans more closely or to listen and respond more carefully to their outbreaks, objections, testimonies, and propositions, which is what she's hinting at in the quote you read, right, the political goal is not... um, equality, but a polity with more channels of communication. So the question that I had then was, who is the one who's listening? Who is the yeah. one who's translating? Who is yes. liaising between the human and the non-human? And isn't this just a kind of another variant of the question that we already have about the democracy, democracy as it currently stands, which is like, who gets to decide, right? Whose voice really matters? Right. Um, and like, can we get out of, you know, again, like, does reformulating all of these concepts or re thinking agency or developing new technologies like ever let us escape the kind of like problems of democracy as it currently stands. And along those lines, there was a lot of we, and I wasn't always sure depending on what chapter it was in, which Mm -hmm. one, is it the homo sapien? Is it the organic versus inorganic? Mm -hmm. And obviously she's kind of meta aware of what she's doing, but I wasn't sure which uh, meta awareness 
what that meta awareness was producing as the we in different places. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Can you maybe, uh, I want you to make your point, but Rachel, while he's doing that, can you maybe find an example where you think that's from the text where you think that's, that's a particularly interesting question? Yeah, yeah I was actually going to like run along with what um, Emily was saying, which is, I think, you know, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you know, you're looking at an epistemological regime, right? You're looking mm-hmm. at like maybe an episteme that's like allowing for certain kinds of meanings or like the conditions for the possibility of meanings to be bestowed and then who amongst uh, and then the who of course like which seems to be obviously human <laughs> rather human oriented um within that epistemological regime affects the ontological primacy of certain kinds of things and thus like the interactions of things so it's like what are, what is the epistemological aspect of this and like who who you know who gets to recognize and thus has the authority to say this that these things this assemblage this orientation right and i think um, I think that's a really, or at least that's where I thought think that you were driving at. And I think that's a really um, interesting, like not only a critical point, but something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so Emily just pointed me to page 107. Um, and um, she says, but what if we loosened, we loosened the tie between participation and human language use, encountering the world as a swarm of vibrant materials entering and leaving agentic assemblages? We might then entertain a sense of crazy and not-so-crazy questions. Did the typical American diet play any role in engendering the widespread susceptibility to the propaganda leading up to the invasion of Iraq? And then there's several questions like this. Um, And then just as in contrast, on page 14 in chapter 1, in her discussion of Adorner's non-identity, towards the bottom of the page, she says... um, We are vital materiality, and we are surrounded by it, though we do not always see it that way. The ethical task at hand here is to cultivate the ability to discern non-human vitality, to become perceptually open to it. So I think maybe the different uses kind of reveal the different levels at what she's trying to argue for um, thing power, you could say, or um, vital animacy. That's smart, I think, because... If that points to you, this is working both on a level where the kind of addressee of the text is political theorists, Mm -hmm. but also where the addressee of this text is like, hey, humans, obviously there's uh, a giant (laughs) gap between those two things and like the accessibility of the text and all sorts of things go into how many humans in her address to humans she can actually reach. Um, So I think that that's an important distinction to make. And, like, I think that the we in that first quote you read, Rachel, that's in the midst of, like, her critique of her critique and affirmation of Ranciere. Um, and I think there the we is political theorists and democratic theorists, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, in the first one it was we humans. Mm-hmm. And this is a question of kind of democracy and epistemology in terms of, you know, the human-centeredness of it. The way that I look at it is that we kind of, you know, to way oversimplify – we have two options. Option one is the way his B, his B scoffs at me. I'm not the only one that the scoffs. Um, that we have the option on the one hand of, you know, things as they are in their current state, like where, you know, in the American democracy, quote unquote democracy, like we're accounting for the agency of things in a very indirect way without actually recognizing their agency. Right? Like we have, you know, when the BP oil spill happens, right, there are there's litigation over how much 
reparation does BP have to pay per dolphin or per destruction of X ecosystem? Mm -hmm. So to that, to climate change debates, to all sorts of things, like we're taking into account kind of without paying much attention, without actually giving much agency or vitality to non-human and inorganic things all the time. So given that, I think the choice again, oversimplified, dualistic, bad choice, is between that or between uh, going in with the perspective and asking the kinds of questions that Bennett's asking. Mm -hmm. So again, the anthropomorphism and anthropocentrism are inevitable, but it's a question of whether you're A, aware of it, and B, doing that while also paying attention to the vitality of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really good. Um, (laughs) I think that's totes legit. Yeah, I have nothing to say. That's totally legit. Well, I mean, but simultaneously, um, I don't know where I was going with that. We might want to strike that last part. Good point. We'll fix that in post. (laughs) Um, I think we've had like four episodes running where they said we'll fix that in post or we'll edit it out and then we just keep it. So we might as well keep the streak alive. Okay, we'll just keep it. Oh, that's fine. You want to just put me on the spot. I'm just still like going Um, back to the epistemic question. I'm just wondering like, okay. Emily, go for it. I knew you were going to, I was anticipating you bringing that question. I had, I thought about it. Um, cause I was thinking about this, this question that I've been, that's been bo- bothering me, right? Like who's the translator, who's the liaise, who listens? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this, right? Cause so she wants to change the, um, the unit of analysis for democratic theory, right? Mm-hmm. So the unit of analysis is not the self-interested individual subject, right? But the unit of analysis in Bennett's formulation of democratic theory is, um, the ontologically heterogeneous public in quotes, that coalesce around a problem, right? So part of what democracy or democratic theory then does is figure out new ways for the ontologically heterogeneous parts of this public to communicate with one another. I I think about communication as a kind of epistemological, also uh, also an epistemological problem, not just a kind of like, it's not just renaming the ontological sort of aspects of the of the public but how do we talk to one another to me is an epistemic problem and i'm thinking about something like black feminist thought or feminist standpoint theory is articulating right like a, a version of truth of reality right is like only accessible from a particular standpoint but the way that we can sort of open that up to mean something or to like mean something for politics is we communicate right we all speak the same language even if our epistemological commitments are different or our we stand in different places when we generate knowledge claims, right? But we still all speak in, in generally human language, right? So one person standing from one particular standpoint can articulate a version of their understanding of, you know, um, domination or whatever, and from another standpoint. But when you're opening up the channels of communication between the human and the non-human, you're like, what language is it that you use, right? So it seems to me that this might be in kind of, tension maybe or it maybe it just needs a an epistemic um aspect to it with intention with something like black feminist thought or like disability theory right that like the idea that uh, an understanding of what the public looks like looks different from a perspective of the not the misfit right 
I'm I'm sorry. I'm like totally no, no, spitballing no, no. here, but Sec- Emily mm-hmm. Crandall's second book <laughs> coming twenty twenty seven. Twenty twenty seven. I I want to know though. Um, so when you say we all use this, you know the same language or like you know we we utilize the human language. Um, to articulate dominant, you know, our, our experiences with oppression and dominance. Like, I mean, what about like the notion that an individual's, you know, unintelligibility forecloses the opportunity to speak about marginalization? So that's epistemic injustice in itself in a hermeneutic way. So, you know, the ways that we're, you know, descri- oh, the ways in which we are even outside the project, what Bennett's doing is that how did the mar? So I maybe what Bennett is doing is inviting us to think. I would like to think, inviting us to think through how. Okay, we can think about hermeneutic injustice in such a way as to say that the marginalized, the, the most marginalized of the marginalized even, mm-hmm. um, have difficulty Hard to, things. or of things too, but let's say marginalized folks um, dealing with the, you know, the various assemblages of things that are continuously also marginalized. Um, how does this work itself into, you know, a language that is open, revisable, and thus not unintelligible? Um, and you know, yeah, how do we make it working on that? Right. What? Like that's what we all do in grad school every day. Right. We're like, yeah, but how to... do we do that politically? I mean, so what, so it's the question is not so much like maybe what we're doing in grad school or political theory, but rather what are we doing politically okay. as, as engagements? Right. I, right. So I'm not suggesting that like things need an identity politics. That <laughs> I didn't mean to sort of push us in Cheers that way. Unite. Um, <laughs> cheers. Yeah. Cheers <laughs> you have nothing to lose, but you're, what I am, but what I am suggesting though. Oh, wait, no, they do shoes. Sorry. What I, <laughs> what I am suggesting, though, however, is that if if the answer was that chairs need to unite, that, like, the way we would understand chairs uniting is filtered through our vocabulary for thinking about groups, thinking about needs, articulating, right, like, participation, right? So I think she hints here about, like, maybe we need to rethink what participation means, but... I guess I'm questioning, like, whether democracy even has, like, even if we conceive of it as radically as possible, like, even has the tools for reconceptualizing reconceptualizing participation such that, like, non-human entities have maybe not equal agency, but, like, some kind of consideration in the process of democratic decision-making. Ask (laughs) maybe the similar question in a more explicitly epistemological realm is, that also goes back to a point that you made, Emily, is the only way that we could develop a standpoint epistemology of the inorganic thing filtered through human standpoints. Mm, right. And what does it mean to listen? I mean, even right. if you're listening, you're hearing it through your ears. Right. Because, I mean, this is what I was thinking, too, of when you think about, like, post-colonial feminist discourse, right? The, the idea that, um, you know... M- like, let's forget about the is multiculturalism bad for women question, like, right, liberal values or multiculturalism. Like, let's forget about that dichotomy and think about navigating that tension, right? So, like, solidarity means listening, right? But, like, what do, what does it mean to have solidarity with, a, you know, non-human matter and listen to non-human matter, right? Because you're still filtering an understanding of, like, needs or whatever through human needs, right? So, like, can the subaltern speak? Like, what if the subaltern doesn't speak in a way that's intelligible to the human? Then how do we listen to it? And who, and who is listening? in the making intelligible of it to humans. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a really easy question to answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I, I suppose not to, like, I, I guess, like, 
to bring the human back in. Maybe I, I just wonder, like, where does so thinking about this as as a you know democratic politics, where does the trans person fit into the politics of things? Right, if we're building like a, you know a politics of like intelligibility and how things work coextensively, um, you know, and we think about marginalization, you know, where does how how does the trans person fit into a political ecology of things, for instance? Well, look, or the any person, or the any person. But, look, but I'm looking I mean, at look like at the, she closes this chapter right? on political ecologies with a quote from Latour. Mm-hmm. That says that doesn't automatically loved, mean I'm going to love it. I loved the <laughs> uh, the inflection <laughs> okay. uh, that came with that. Right. So surely the scope of democratization—this is not the quote of Latour, but it precedes the quote—can be broadened to acknowledge more non-humans in more ways, in something like the ways in which we have come to hear the political voices of other humans formerly on the outs. So she's not saying we've resolved all the problems and that there are no humans who are on the outs, right? But like this is a—I don't know—like a process, but not progressive right like it's not a teleological process so the quote from Latour is are you ready and at the price of what sacrifice to live the good life together that this highest of moral and political questions could have been raised for so many centuries by so many bright minds for human only without the non-humans that make them up will soon appear I have no doubt as extravagant as when the founding fathers denied slaves and women the vote I mean so I think the trans person or the any person like fits in that right that like this is like all persons and all things and all all of their diff- encompassing differences are you know subject to scrutiny under the highest of moral and political questions right like or or given should be ought to be given access to consideration under this highest of moral and political questions and i think it's Go ahead, Rachel. Sorry. No, I'm still formulating it in my head. You go. Ahead. I mean, so for me to be, I think that that's the right task, the right way to approach that question, and to maybe try to do so more specifically, it's a matter of thinking through, perhaps, what different agential assemblages, different kind of people are caught up in, mm-hmm. right? So there's different kinds of materialities that are at play with different kinds of trans bodies than there are with lots of cis bodies. And different non-human entities. Exactly. So, like, you know, the... Surgery. Yes. Or, like, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, testosterone or something, right? That, like, you know, the relationship of John testosterone environment is a cis person, like, is different than a person who... Um, injects themselves with testosterone. So there's a different way that testosterone is at play. There's a non-human object of a needle that does the injecting. Like there are other, there are are other um, kinds of materialities and different kinds of assemblages, right? right? So where, what the next step is, if that then, I don't know what the then part is, but I think that's the first half of it is think through the different kinds of material, vibrant materialities of the assemblages that different kinds of people are caught up in. I think actually that relates and smack me if I'm just using this as a way to transition to one of my other questions. <laughs> but I mean, no this relates. At the <laughs> Only verbal smack. Only ver- That's fine. Verbal. That's fine. Um, I find that aggressive. Yeah, it was. A little masculine. I'm sorry. What do you expect? But the way that uh, this kind of relates to that lurking totality or lack thereof in this. Um, so what's the so that, right? What is the importance of seeing all the, the different assemblages in this? Mm-hmm. So that we do something, so that we make sure that we all communicate better, there's better interdependence in this kind of radical, different, differential democracy. So when she's talking about Dewey and Ranciere at the end, 
I found myself wondering, especially when she's talking about doing um, the, what is the word she uses? Conjoint? Yeah. Uh, so, so for example, let me, let me be more specific. At the top of page 102, um, she says, Dewey's con con concept of conjoint action distributes responsibility to many different, parentheses, human actors. What is more in naming a problem rather than an act of will, as the driving force behind the formation of a public, Dewey, parentheses, almost, acknowledges that a political action need not originate in human bodies at all. For is it not the case that some of the initiatives that conjoin and cause harm started from, parentheses, or later became conjoined with the vibrant bodies of animals, plants, metals, or machines? So on the one hand, I really like this idea of a series of kind of overlapping networks of uh, thing power or... Uh, vital animacy, vital materialism, excuse me. But at the same time, I so I wrote in the more margins, non-joint question mark, unjoining question mark, where did Adorno go question mark, and unified ecology question mark. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for we can we don't have to talk about Adorno right now, but but I so I wondered, is this sort of trying to tie it up too neatly? Is is right. the point of all the different overlapping networks and assemblages to ensure that we all participate in some secret unified whole. Right, or that, like, the, if followed through, like, if this had a teleology, right, that the teleology would be, like, world peace or something. Well, like, right. Yeah, if, I, I was wondering. Vaguely, yeah, it sounds vaguely pro progressivist. And I guess while I'm kind of listing questions, another thing that I found really fascinating was um, in almost every way, this is, like, a a big departure very actively so or intentionally so from kind of the uh, philosophical, ethical, um, moralistic, principle-based um, understanding of what's the word I'm looking for, uh, agency or, or oh. um, what it means to take part in politics. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that's something she critiques. And yet some sentences I felt like I, I could have actually been reading um, feminist ethic of care literature or um, like liberal individualism literature on democracy. So um, one example I found on page 13, back on uh, back in chapter one. Um, so I think I know what you're looking at the top of the page, right? Like the first third of that page. Oh, vital materialism would set up a safety net for humans who are now routinely made to suffer. Yeah, and then later, such a newfound attentiveness to matter, but I almost think you could put in matter, so let's let's take out matter for a sec. Such a newfound attentiveness to X and its powers will not solve the problem of human exploitation or oppression, but it can inspire a greater sense of the extent to which all bodies are kin in the sense of inextricably enmeshed in a dense network of relations. Right, you could just add network of interdependency right there and that's a sentence from care ethics of care yeah yeah and then there was in chapter seven i found myself kind of um feeling that similarly at different points um and now i can't find where but um can i maybe respond? yeah emily jump in um i think that i think i get the sense that what she's trying to do is like play with the tools that we're kind of stuck with right so she's saying like i'm not offering this as an alternative to the explanation that some people do things because it's in their self-interest my goal is actually to 
reimagine what self-interest would look like if we think that things have power and things have agency and they act upon us, right? So it's not to, it's not to like con go out and convince every person in the world that like you really don't have any self-interest, like our, our singular self-interest is the interest of the whole or something kind of like really, like, um, really egocentric in that way. It's just that like, let, let's just like push on some places where we, where we might be able to kind of expand um, parts of these ideas, right? So it's not convincing everyone that they need to give up thinking about themselves in favor of thinking about the health of the whole organism, right? At, that, at all, right? That that's like, in fact, um, I, I think she says several times, like, that that would be the way too idealistic carried out version of this, which I don't actually endorse, right? But that, like, how can we work with what we're given by, like, carving out little places to rethink, um, how life works, who has force and like how, who acts, right? And who in the broader sense of not just humans, but things. So the ethical question would be also situating ourselves within this enmeshedness or this, in, you know, the interdependency of this enmeshedness right. is to say, understanding the location of ourselves as privileged groups, as privileged by whatever, um, you know, set of assemblages that, that connect us to that privilege but the ethical question would be what gives us this kind of privileged position within the assemblage itself. Um, and then by doing so, acting, perhaps acting accordingly, because I don't know if, if there's definitely a pot, like, I don't know if there's definitely a positive ethics that's like coming out of this, but it invites a set of ethical questions that I think need attention. John right? thinks there's a positive ethics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or like, a, you know, or I said, like, I don't know if there's necessarily like a normative or positive set of ethical, like considerations or action. Um, but rather, like maybe a set of vague um, ethical considerations that um, that Jane Bennett puts on the table that are extraordinarily important in the sense that you know those who and and it goes back to some of these questions that maybe maybe she's trying to get away from maybe she's not it's like you know what what happens when you have versus the have you know what happens to those who have not um, those who have like in in the you know in the interplay of things and the accumulation of things in this vast assemblage that you know, um, that constitutes like our, you know, neoliberal society, as it were, um, or, or global culture, um, you know, identifying ourselves within that network is instrumental in then changing the actions that we take in everything from consumption to, you know, how we are to think of how are we to, you know, given our, yeah, give an account um, of another, perhaps. I think also um, to borrow from Butler. Speaking of speaking of ethics, I mean, I think one thing she's doing is she talks about how she wants to quote raise the status of the materiality of which we are composed, and I think that she's doing that as a corrective to um, moral descriptors, mm -hmm. right? Or and just the pure instrumentalization of everything that's not human. Yeah, right. yeah. And, but specifically in chapter one, when she's talking about um, Spinoza's ethics. Here, the vital materialist, she says, taking a cue from Nietzsche's and Spinoza's ethics, favors physiological over moral descriptors because uh, she fears that she, who is she talking about here? I think it's the vital materialist. Oh, got it, got yeah. it. That moralism can itself become a source of uneasy human suffering. So in some ways, I think by elevating materiality, she's implying that a physiological descriptor would not as readily leave, lead to human suffering. But I wasn't fully convinced um she's because then on page 17 she says um 
This impulse towards cultural, linguistic, or historical constructivism, which interprets any expression of thing power as an effect of culture and the play of human powers, politicizes moralistic and oppressive appeals to, quote, nature. So I, I don't know, the, the whole use of, the whole critique of morals, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's like I'm on board with her, so I'm wondering where I'm going with this. Um, but at the same time, I wonder, does she reify too much this idea of the physiological approach as that which gets us out of human suffering? Or that she's constantly politicizing it, or the invitation of consistently and constantly politicizing those things so that they're not reified, right? Or like inviting through a Nietzschean framework saying, you know, once we've, once something has the status of a moralism, you, you smash it out. And then thus create the, the conditions for a new set of what potentially could be a moralism. But that, you know, each that somehow and this goes into Foucault, too, is that you run the risk of, of having moralism. You run the risk of having an epistemological regime. You run the risk of these things. Everything is dangerous. I guess I think everything has the potential to be dogmatic. And so Absolutely. what I'm wondering is, um, you know, seeing materialism as a corrective and as a tool and as a way of, um, you know, demystifying objective knowledge or objective anything without making it an end in and of itself, which is not, I'm not saying she's doing that. I'm just kind of pointing to, you know, these sentences where it's like, um, you know, as opposed to a moralistic account, which causes human suffering. Well, I think any dogmatic frame can cause human suffering. I'm on board with you with that one. I have a couple of thoughts. Um, first, I mean, Granted that if we could excise the most essentialist and the most and the whitest parts of feminist care ethics, I'm down with care ethics. Mm -hmm. So like I don't think that's a bad thing if there may be some resemblances. Um, secondly, I mean I think that since we're reading all these sentences from pages twelve and thirteen, <laughs> I'm gonna read my favorite sentence from twelve and thirteen. I swear we read the whole thing. Um, which is a, it's a quote, the ethical aim becomes to distribute value more generously to bodies as such. Um, and if, like, I'm given... What's that? I don't know what that means. I mean, I think it... I mean, that's, that's like, the, one of the more Spinozan sentences in all of the book that we read, I think. Um, I think we're hurt in this discussion we're having right now that we're not talking about Chapter 8, where she takes all of this on more directly. Um, so... I think we should all acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, but I think that the ethical imperative is to say, and we should also say that this whole discussion that we're having now and the pages we're referring to are her responding to the critique that she anticipates of by doing this flattening in an ontological sense, mm -hmm. aren't we going to make humans instrumentalized and thus have less moral outcomes, right? right? She says, that would be the most obvious critique to make of this, and here's why this is wrong. And so I think in, if, if, yeah. if we are just limited to that context, I don't think there's any danger to it, but and even if we go beyond that context, I actually don't think that this is, or whatever dangers or risks are involved in this particular ethical framework, um, because it's more imminent, because it's more material, et cetera, et cetera, I think that the dangers of her are much less, and I buy her account of it compared to other sort of moral frameworks. Mm -hmm. um, and to go all the way back to a question, the way that we started this discussion, um, and this is where I think kind of the political and ethical come together in her text, and now if we go to page nine in the preface, 
Why advocate, why advocate the vitality of matter? Because my hunch is that the image of dead or thoroughly instrumentalized matter feeds human hubris in our earth-destroying fantasies of conquest and consumption, just so by preventing us from detecting, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, a fuller range of the non-human powers circulating around and within human bodies. These material powers, which can aid or destroy, enrich or disable, ennoble or degrade us, in any case call for our attentiveness or even respect. The figure of an intrinsically inanimate matter may be one of the impediments to the emergence of a more ecological and more materially sustainable modes of production and consumption. Right, so that's, I think, a moment where the political and ethical come together for her around some of the questions we've been raising for the past discussion. Yeah, I think that's true. I think so, too, that um, it's important to note that there are other ways of conceptualizing, right, in the um, sort of non-human matter as vital that she I, I mean not explicitly but I would assume in reading this is like kind of trying to preempt right or like cut like like just dis disavow um, without naming them which is something like the approaching of like this like gendered mother earth kind of conceptualization of the earth as our like caretaker, like this kind of divine conceptualization of the non-human, right? That like what goddess feminism, right? What, <laughs> what, what her account allows us to do is to think about like the interactivity in a way that's that's like less derived from um, uh, the divine, which means that everybody has agency, right? So if we just think that like the earth is God and we have to respect the earth because that's the, you know, like the earth is what gives us, I don't know, I'm not, I'm doing justice to this order, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like that, that then we kind of absolve ourselves of, of, um, agency in the world. Like don't, you know, don't take responsibility for our actions. Like the earth is punishing us for, um, you know, producing too much too quickly or we're sinners or whatever. So that that's why climate change is happening, right? That they're like, I think that what her account does really well is like holds, holds agency with with ethics, which allows us to, to say that, like, okay, so maybe we can't shed, um, you know, relations of domination altogether, and maybe we can't go around the world and convince every single person that, like, there is something more than just being self-interested in the world, but, like, we can have agency to affect things, right? Even if there's no teleology to that effect, even if there's no... Um, you know, t maybe no holistic health of the whole planet that we can achieve or, or aim for, right? She calls this, the, like, the ambition of vinyl materialism. She calls it naive, right? In that section you read a sentence for um, from just earlier, right? So it's just about, like, I think it's about, like, small things. I don't know. I keep coming back to, like, pockets. But I to me, that's what the sort of, like, force of it is, that it's yeah. – that. Like, even though they're taken all the way, there could be something really totalizing about this. I think that what she's trying to do is, like, work within uh, a tendency to conceptualize human life as totalizing and think about, like, the moments or the pockets where we can kind of, like, look at the agency of things and then, like, recalibrate our own actions in relationship to that agency or something. I think that's beautifully said. And I think the other thing that the word that stuck out to me the most that I thought was the most rad was hubris. I mean, I think ultimately it's a project against hubris right. and um, human hubris and within the quote human species. 
you know, different forms of hubris. I think those are two wonderful places to end on. Um, this room is very hot. We've been hot so boxing hot. it with all our hot air. intellectuals. Uh, so we're going to take a break, turn the <laughs> fan on for a few minutes, and we'll be back with uh, a dream and two questions from my Tumblr friend in Canada. Good boy. Bye. back. Emily had to go pack. She's leaving for Michigan tomorrow because she's smart and fancy and we're still here. Does that make us not smart and not fancy? Yes and no. We'll let the listeners decide. What we're going to decide is that it's time for everyone's favorite segment, <laughs> my Tumblr friend <laughs> from, from Canada. Canada. John King of Transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our first question that Rachel is going to read, and you can send questions to us, alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Rachel has a question from Sandra in Texas. So Sandra from Texas writes, I am soon going to be visiting my partner's parents for the first time. What should I bring them as a gift? My first thought is that it have, should have some sort of local meaning, like that you're coming from Texas. I don't know where in Texas you're coming from. Some sort of like local flavor. Now, I have a tendency to agree. I think like something that reflects um, the Texas flair. I mean, I don't know exactly where you're located in Texas, but, um, you know, something so like Southwestern's like beautiful color. Like there's so many yeah. beautiful colors, Southwest themes. Um, but yeah, I have a tendency to agree with John on this one. I mean, I don't know, like, so if I was going to go meet a partner's parents, like, a New York thing, maybe, like, I would go to a museum and, like, go to one of the museum stores, like, MoMA has yeah. like, very expensive but very beautiful, amazing, cool things in mm. the store. Um, that might be something I would do, like, if it was me, but this is Sandra in Texas, so I don't, I've spent, I've lived in Texas for a couple of years, but... Uh, oh. It's been a long time. I don't know exactly where in Texas, but I yeah. mean, if certainly if you're in a metropolis like Dallas or, you know, San Antonio or Houston, um, I would say like, yeah, hitting up a cultural hotspot, finding a, you know, something of a, um, a unique piece of memorabilia and then, um, you know, presenting it as a gift. I think yeah. that's wonderful. I have nothing to add. Okay. I think that's great. All right. Uh, I thought we were going to talk a lot. Let me look up our other question. Uh, I'm really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> our other question comes from Rob. Rob did said did not give us a location, so where do you want to say Rob is from? Ottawa. Rob from Ottawa. <laughs> Canada gets so much pleasure. <laughs> my question, to put it broadly, my question is this. What should I do at a conference if I'm not presenting a paper? I've been in grad school for a while, but haven't actually put in any real time at conferences yet. I finally got around to registering for some conferences, but missed the submission deadline and have thus realized I'm pretty clueless about what I should be doing if not performing some specific task related to my work. I get that I'm supposed to be networking, but in the absence of a talk or something else where I'd be presenting research or advertising myself through some other discrete task, how can I make the most of my time there? I have the sinking feeling that attempting to network just be 
walking up to someone, introducing myself would be a bit of a disaster. I'm pretty anxious most of the time and I'm not usually great at approaching people. So do you happen to have any networking for socially anxious dummy style advice? <laughs> have you found anything else to be especially worthwhile use of time at a conference? B's raising his hand. As a socially anxious individual um, who's medicated for it, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I would say that probably the best thing to do, even though you're going to feel anxious about doing it, is to attend, um, go through the conference um, uh, profile. What is the name program. of the, the program profile? <laughs> the um, go, go through the prefix. <laughs> go through the program. Identify panels to which you would like to, you know, that you should and would like to attend. Attend those panels, prepare yourself to ask questions of the people who are presenting work that you find particularly interesting. And when you ask those questions, make a certain degree, maybe even have the intention of asking a question such that you can then introduce yourself to the presenter afterwards, afterwards, as such as a sort of a segue into, Hey, I really appreciated your talk. And they're going to respond with, Hey, I really appreciated your question. Um, in which case you can then exchange emails and try and keep in touch, especially if you find the work particularly interesting. A cautious word of advice. Yes. I think, um, in every conference, most of us have been to, there's the usually man who stands up and says, this relates to my work because X. So I think there is a place for that, but it's afterwards one-on-one contextually rather mm-hmm. than in the public Q&A. Yes. And the other thing I would say, um, which is what I do, is um, look through the program and find one person, maybe two, that are the most uh, kind of similarly oriented in their work to what I'm doing and write them in advance and say, do you have time for a coffee? Because that way it's more authentic. You know, it's about, um, like you feel quote unquote productive networking wise, but it's more enjoyable and more authentic because it's actually about chit chatting about things that are similar rather than like, dear president of this subfield of APSA, I found your name and I need to network. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's one thought. Yeah. So I think targeted is the way to go. I totally second Rachel's point, maybe even make it a little more formulaic, Hmm. like, um, which I find is helpful for me because I'm terrible at networking and also very anxious about it, um, and anxious about things in general. Um, is to, like, if you have a question, just one question, then maybe save it for after the panel or even an email later on. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you kind of have two questions and if you can ask one question in the panel... And again, not refer to your own work and asking a question because there's few things people hate more than that um, at a conference. And then you can follow up with another question after to show your interest. And then you're like have the ability to have more of a conversation at that point. So if like being really formulaic is going to be helpful, that might be one way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would add is just do it with things that generally interest you. So rather than the should, do it because, you know, you're you're authentically interested in whatever the topic is. Yeah. Any other thoughts? No. All right. Good luck, Rob. Good You'll luck. be awesome. Rob from Ottawa, we said? Yep. yep. Okay. Now it's time for One or Several Wolves. And this, we have another anonymous dream. Imagine that, anonymous dreams. Remember, dreams. all dreams are anonymous when you submit them. So submit. Alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. I feel like I've been reading a lot. Does one of you want to read this dream? Um, I'll try. Okay. Let's see. Ah, the dreamer writes, I walk out of a doctor's office. I'm not sure what the appointment was about, but it was not life-threatening. The office building in the dream is similar to a doctor's office I used to go to in real life, but not exactly the same. 
I walk into the bathroom, but water is pouring out of the ceiling. Hmm. Somehow, it is not flooding the bathroom, just gushing down. Hmm. I walk out immediately and spend some time walking around the building trying to find a bathroom, but I can't. I go back to the original one. It's still pouring water, and as I do, I see someone coming out of the doctor's office, an acquaintance of mine in the dream world. However, I'm scared, <laughs> like there's something bad about um, them seeing me or them realizing I see them, so I rush down the stairs. Hmm. There's a jump in time, but later the same day, I meet up with a friend and her two friends, who I don't know, uh, to get a drink before uh, we go to a large outdoor concert in a park. As it starts to drizzle, I realize I lost my messenger bag that had my umbrella somewhere in the doctor's office. Hmm. I think I left in the bathroom. I feel utterly and totally ashamed for some reason, hmm. and it leads to me feeling lots of tension in the group or like everyone is upset with me. Hmm. Nonetheless, we walk to a food truck, in parentheses, one a, a friend had talked about in real slash waking life, in parentheses, uh, start to order, and then my alarm goes off. Hmm. Wow. wow. Okay. I love Rachel. this imagery of rain. Yeah, there's a lot of water in there. A lot of water, a lot of rain, and it seems like it's coming down from the upward direction, so it's not flowing. Right. It's like, it's it's uh, more threatening than it is peaceful. And it's uncontrolled, right? There's the water coming from the ceiling, there's the rain you have no control over, no like protection umbrella from... Well, speaking of control, it's always going to the doctor's office represents something that is internally um, tension-oriented. You don't have control over what the doctor is going to say. There's a certain degree of inspection that you want from the doctor. And maybe even going to the doctor's office is about sort of seeking a degree of control over the anxiety that one feels in one's life. So maybe what mm -hmm. is happening for the dreamer is, you know... What is, you know, what really is happening? Seeing a doctor is attempting to get a diagnosis for something that you're not sure, you know, what your, the ailment is. So you're trying to find, a, you know, a, some kind of definitive case for it. But what ends up, what you end up finding, Dreamer, is um, rather a kind of uh, an ongoing ambivalence, what right? you, you tend to find, or ambiguousness. Um, you find a bathroom, uh, but it's not really working. Um, there's water pouring down, but it's not flooding. Contradictions, right? Um, and then, of course, there is the the fact that you're at a concert, a place of a you know public gathering, a very large space, which might indicate a certain degree of agoraphobia. In which case, it starts raining. If you're like that that kind of public or open space where you feel ashamed because you didn't bring something that that seems to be necessary in a time like that. I actually saw the, the water coming from the ceiling but not flooding the bathroom as maybe um, a questioning around the sure-footedness of one's ability to handle something. So yeah. there's mm -hmm. certain things that are out of control, but it's not flooding. So it's almost it's like... Just on the, on the it's just on the precipice. <laughs> like, okay, now I'm earlier. holding all the reins, but... Will I lose? Will I lose them? Rot, rot, rot. Right. You know, will I lose them? Right now, I just about have control, but things are slipping around the edges. Will it just complete? Will there be total deluge? And then also with that, the ability almost, it seems like the person feels a responsibility to hold, um, hold the well-being of others at the at the concert there's sort of an a, a, the shame I, i'm not sure of, about yeah that's the part that that's i kind of have the most difficult piecing together with the rest of the dream yeah yeah because the part about you know 
everyone's mad at me. There is sort of the, like, you know, I failed in some way. Or maybe, I, I mean, I just wonder if in the dream, the other individuals, the friends had an umbrella and it's the one person who didn't bring the umbrella. That's the odd person out. Hmm. Or perhaps the person's feeling a degree of like shame because perhaps in the dream, they felt that they were the ones who should have brought the umbrella to protect the group from the rain. Hmm. Which are two very different things. Two actually. very different things. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what... Several wolves. Several wolves, right? Several wolves. So it's like depending on what is happening in the dream, it could go either way in that direction. But, um, you know, ultimately the fear is alleviated. You know, the fear is unwarranted because the, the friends themselves invite the dreamer to a food truck to, to you know, hmm. to in essence, like food represents a kind of... Um, you know, a coming together, a communion, as it were, right? A Food nourishing. is comforting, nourishing. It's something that people do together. Um, and so um, to an extent, perhaps what in the dream it represents is a, you know, the alleviation of that shame is that in the end, those friends are still are friends, are not there to shame you or to, or to make you feel ashamed, but rather to help you and to nurture you. Well, it depends, right? Because it, mm. it depends on whether those feelings of shame or tension or whatever are like alleviated when you go for the food because if Mm -hmm. those feelings of tension and shame continue while you're like in line ordering the food and stuff then it's like that those bad feelings continue to persist even in something that could be the nourishing Mm -hmm. but you know we wouldn't find that out because the alarm went off and so the dreamer awakes so dreamer go back to sleep go back to sleep (laughs) this out we're kind of like on a cliffhanger here yeah you know so but um we're on a precipice yeah speaking of precipice Speaking of pie. Speaking of press pie, it's time for us to eat food. Yes. Because we're hungry and it's hot in this friggin' room. Yes, it is. Um, we want to thank you for listening in, everyone. Yes. Thank you. So our next episode will be one of two things. Either uh, Walter Mignolo on decolonialism. Of course, right when I go away. No, we're making a record it before you go away. Correct. I'm going away a week from Monday. I know. We 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 have a we have an intricate calendar here. <laughs> we do. Already podcast. Just looking out for the old self. Um, <laughs> don't worry. It's been the plan that we made sure that Rachel was here to talk about Mignolo. Uh, and there's also going to be an interview with Nicholas Tampio at from Fordham, who has a book coming out on Deleuze and political theory. So Ooh. we'll be having an interview with him coming out soon. We're not sure which of those things will come first. And actually, now that I say that, I actually think the interview might have happened by the time people listen to this episode. Yeah, so that's true. Maybe you've already heard the Nick Tambio interview. We hope in you enjoyed case, it. You probably enjoyed it. Yeah. And the next episode really will be Mignolo. All right. All right. Godspeed, Emily. You're going to go be super fancy and Amazing. smart. And, um,. You too, listeners. You're fancy and smart as well. Indeed. You're fancy and smart, and you've got great dreams, and we're all part of a broader human and beyond human family, non-family, conjoined, non-conjoined. Through interconnectedness. And and inter-post-pre-fixed connectedness. Amen. Precipite. Precipite. joining us for this episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by Emily Crandall, B. Altman, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss, dreams to analyze, and advice questions to answer to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our RSS feed. Thank you to Rocco and Lizzie for the song Exit End of Platform and to B for his cover of Landslide in this episode. Till next time, our next episode is going to be on the 
Decolonial Theorist Walter Mignolo. Talk to you then. Bye. Cheeky or salty. You guys disappoint me constantly. There goes your gypsy queen. Just don't kick the chair, <laughs> bozo. You don't, I'm his don't read me. Don't throw shade. I just want to fucking get through this particular podcast with little mental damage. Why possible. are you being so aggro today? Oh, God. <laughs> Is I had... it because you started to work out? I know. And, like, the lifting is. Suck, 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 sucks.